Just as we brought you stories of American monsters in our last episode, now it's time to discover some of the legendary creatures and beasts that inhabit the murky places in the rest of the world. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. Today, we explore stories about cryptids from around the world. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Well, now, before we jump into those fabulous stories from around the world, let's take a look at the calendar, shall we? Gosh, we're almost through April. Can you believe it? No. Um, no. April, this, well, this is 2022, just flying by like crazy. Well, today is Monday, April 25th. It is World Penguin Day. Woo! All right. Good charity right. for the penguins. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, world Penguin Day seeks to celebrate the aquatic flightless birds. Penguins are critical to their ecosystems as they serve as both predators and prey. They provide food for leopard seals while preying on fish such as squid and krill. Most penguins are monogamous. They oh. pair off for life. I didn't know that. In fact, they have distinct calls which allow them to locate their mates in large groups. I wonder what that call sounds like. Phil, you got any idea? <coughs> yeah, I guess that would work. Let's get over here and sit on this egg for a while probably because I, I think that... <laughs> <laughs> with many penguins, the the uh, female lays the eggs, but the male actually sits it's on. Yeah, the I kind of like that. Like she lays the eggs, and she's like, "I'm, I'm out of here." <laughs> so that sound that you heard is actually our international cryptid in the studio. Right. Yeah, it's, we found one. It's a real from, thing from Asia. <laughs> there he is. A rubber chicken made in China. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can thank Phil for uh, for those noises and Dr. Meeker for bringing that in. Thank yeah. you. I found him in so my much. classroom closet today. So who knows how long he's been lurking in there? But he's anyway. not very dusty. I mean, it can't be that long. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so happy World Penguin Day! Now for this next one, got a little music here. Let's see. Hear that? Oh uh, yes. I hear it now, coming down the line today, uh, this Friday, April 29th, is Duke Ellington Day. Hey. Duke Ellington Day commemorates the life of jazz musician Edward Kennedy Ellington. Born April 29th, 1899 in Washington, D.C., Ellington was a famous American composer, pianist, and band leader of jazz orchestra that performed at Harlem's Cotton Club during the 1920s. In the 1930s, his music spread internationally as he and his orchestra traveled throughout Europe. Ellington is considered to be, have elevated the status of jazz from mere music to an art form. Ellington's most popular recordings are one you're hearing right now, which is called Take the A-Train. Yeah, and there's another one. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Oh, yeah, nice. I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for that, and happy Duke Ellington Day. Uh, be a good day to sit around and listen to some Duke Ellington. Old, I love uh, I love uh, big band music anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, Duke Ellington and uh, Glenn Miller. Do you know uh, my fourteen year old daughter Tori is really into that music? So we just came back from a trip, and that's all we listened to. Oh, that's great! On, on the was on big the, band. That's well, good. it wasn't all well, big band. Some okay. of it was, but it was jazz. Yeah, yep. And she she is jazz so and into big it. Band. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, then next Saturday, May 7th, is near and dear to Leah's home state. It's Kentucky Derby Day. Yay. That Bring is... on those hats again. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> the Kentucky, uh, Kentucky Derby is one of the oldest horse races in the world. The race is a 1.25 miles long, or one and a quarter mile, I guess we should say, known as the most exciting two minutes in sports. The race features three-year-old thoroughbreds on a dirt track. It's held annually at Churchill Downs Racetrack in Louisville, Kentucky. Did I say that right? Louisville. Louisville. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your old hometown. The Kentucky Derby, run on the first Saturday in May of every year, is the first leg of the elusive Triple Crown race. The race was first held in 1875. Wow. It's been mm -hmm. around a long time then. Since then, the Derby has become a day of luxury and fashion that many celebrities often attend. That's right. And, of course, you don't want to forget next Sunday, May the 8th, which is Mother's Day. 
That's right. Call your mom. Right. Call your mom and tune in uh, to our go to our website and look at last year. Uh, we did a really great episode called Hello, Mother. It's ep- uh, season two, episode nine. And uh, it's a great Mother's Day episode. So you can play that for mom. You'll enjoy the day. Like we said in the last episode, the word cryptid refers to a creature that is believed to exist without significant proof. The term has been widely used since the early 1980s, but sightings and claims of the unnatural have haunted the globe for centuries. Long time, yeah. All cultures, all peoples across the globe have folklore that is just full of creatures that are not quite human and not quite animal. Kind they of sound may... like your Uncle Bob, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I may Listen. resemble one of them, apparently. <laughs> I think you're going to resemble a couple of these cryptids, Phil. <laughs> but they may be somewhere in between or may have supernatural powers that no human or animal possesses. Have you ever seen seen anything out there in the shadows that you couldn't quite explain? Yeah, often it was tree stumps, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so much of our information, I'm just going to cite it right here. A lot of our stories come yeah. from that wonderful site called Cryptids, which with the with Z, Z at the end, yeah. fandom.com. And then um, it's a self-described cryptid wiki. <laughs> so there you go. Well, so we're going to break up the globe here by continents. And uh, by uh, regions, at least. And beginning with Latin America. And by Latin America, I'm referring to everything from Mexico and the Caribbean islands all the way to the southern tip of South America. From a terrific website called remezcla.com, R-E-M-E-Z-C-L-A. And I looked it up, remezcla actually means remix. Uh, We find a great article called 13 Terrifying, Spooky, and Awesome Latin American Horror Monsters and Legends. (laughs) I like that already. All 13 are interesting, but we're going to narrow it down to just three here. And we'll begin with the Yakumama. Yeah, it's fun to say say? that the Yakumama, Y-A-C-U-M-A-M-A. Well, listen, with with Mother's Day coming up, that's perfect. There you go, What are you talking about my mama for? (laughs) We're yakking about you, mama. The legend of Yakumama comes from Peru and Ecuador. These mountainous countries contain the headwaters of the mighty Amazon River. The Yakumama is a horned, (laughs) snake-like sea monster believed to be the mother of all sea creatures. The Yakumama is part multiple indigenous groups' mythology, primarily tribals, uh, tribes hailing from the western Amazon in the hills and lowlands of Peru and Ecuador. According to various European colonizers, accounts from the 19th century of the Yakamama is rumored to be as long as 160 feet. Wow. wow. All right. Before entering unfamiliar bodies of water, indigenous tribes will blow a conch horn to warn the gigantic reptile of human presence. Hey, and we're coming in. Will hopefully ward off attack. The Yakumama also appears further south in the country of Argentina. However, here it is also a goddess of the water, taking the form of an elderly human woman that approaches kids who enter the river to collect water in their canteens. The unsuspecting children would then be captured and their blood sucked out by the Yakumama. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for some strange reason, the people of Argentina have recently commissioned a postage stamp featuring the Yakumama, we have a picture of that, and we'll include yeah. it on our, our social media page, our Facebook page. <laughs> so, uh, happy Yakumama Day. I think that's the, the biggest. The, at 160 feet, I think that's the biggest cryptid oh, so far. maybe so. Uh, there, there's, a, there's some other big ones on here. Well, so I, say, we'll I say so far, like so far. So far, okay. So yeah, far of all the... We've through one right yeah. now. I'm, I'm oh, talking about like even episode? previous oh, episode, episode yeah. too. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're growing bigger <laughs> up there. Now we well, want to... It's the Amazon. Everything's bigger. Now we want to talk about El Culebron. That's C-U-L-E-B-R-O-N. And there's not an English equivalent, I know, because I looked it up on uh, Translator, and it says the Culebron. So (laughs) (laughs) So it translated L to the. L to the, but Culebron (laughs) is just Culebron. Anyway, it's basically an anaconda on super steroids. At least it's not LeBron James. No. <laughs> it's an enormous hairy snake with a gigantic calf like head. Hairy snake. Oh, it's my God. It's not related okay. to the Yakamama. No, no. Oh, okay. It's no. on its own. Got it. Different place. The creature belongs <laughs> to the rural countryside of Chile, where it is said to come out at night from dark caves and remo- or remote forests and eat basically anything in its path. El Culebron uh, also has a treasure radar. Oh, and okay. is said to arrive at the sites of buried treasure 40 days after it's been buried. Hey, we should have had him on our treasure episode. Right? That's right. A couple of months ago. Go catch this and find yeah. my beard's treasure. That's right. 
Uh, now, it's a pretty good trick, you know, when you can find buried treasure, I would say. Anyone wishing to recover the treasure must douse the ground with a strong alcoholic beverage like schnapps in the hopes that the snake will get drunk off the liquor and, and let its guard down. Did you add the like schnapps in there or was that in uh, part actually, of the Because I'm thinking. There was a, there was a I think it would be uh, no, tequila. I translated that. It's translated. <laughs> so Colbron didn't, but schnapps there was did. A, there was right. a, uh, no, yeah, there was another <laughs> word. Uh, I, I didn't write it down here, but it translated to schnapps. <laughs> <laughs> So pour, pour pour some strong alcoholic drink on the ground and uh, get the get the uh, El Culebron tipsy and so then you it, might. Uh, it doesn't want preserve. tequila. It wants schnapps. Schnapps, yeah, Got it it. schnapps. Very That's specific. funny. Hard That's... to find in Chile, I think. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that El Culebron is attracted to riches, legend also has it that the snake can draw wealth to anyone who is able to quote domesticate it. But trapping El Culebron is no easy feat. You have to find one in the wild, pluck three of its longest hairs without getting eaten, then put the hairs in a bowl of milk. From that bowl, three baby Culebron Ninos will spring to life, and the strongest <laughs> will eat the other two and become a full-fledged El Culebron. From that point forward, owners must maintain the snakes with sacrifices of animals or close relatives. <laughs> really, what it said. <laughs> And leave the blood in a secret location that only the snake knows of. Otherwise, no money for you, and you'll probably get eaten. Ah, that's <laughs> an interesting legend. Wow. Three hairs and a bowl of milk. And three hairs and a bowl of milk. And they just miraculously spring they, up. They turn into little snakes, and the stronger one will eat the other two, and then it he, becomes an El Culebron cool itself. So that's how you domesticate it. But you got to be pretty careful around. But it'll still eat you yeah, if you can, don't yeah. keep feeding it. Have a nasty disposition, those relatives. Uh, <laughs> now, this one is one we have heard of here in in Texas because uh, we have a pretty strong Latin American culture as well. Well, well this one crosses the border right. from time to time. <laughs> yeah, it kind of wanders around. It's El Chupacabra. That Chupacabra. El Chupacabra, like a Latin American Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster, El Chupacabra, literally goat sucker. Is a beast whose alleged existence has plagued farmers and the collective Latin American consciousness for some time now. Poor, it's really not quite as old, though, as uh, I thought. It's only uh, first noted back to 1995. Oh, really? In uh, Puerto Rico, of all, uh, on the it island can of Puerto swim. Rico. Yeah. The, yeah, the first report oh. of a chupacabra attack was in March of 1995. Uh, but some reports say they go back uh, earlier than that. But in Puerto Rico, eight sheep were killed and completely drained of blood, with three puncture wounds on each of their chests. Authorities attributed the killings to more conventional predators, but many locals suspected a satanic cult. By August, 150 similar livestock killings had taken place in Puerto Rico, and by the end of the year, the mysterious beast had been blamed for over a thousand. Descriptions of the creature varied wildly. In the town of, let's see, C-A-N-O-V-A-N-A-S, Canovanas, I guess, uh, the creature was described as winged, swooping down on its prey. In Caguas, C-A-G-U-A-S, it was said to have hairy arms and red eyes. Well, by the end of 1995, the most prevalent description was of a gray, alien-like creature, about three to four feet tall, that walks upright on its muscular hind legs. By 1996, reports of uh, chupacabra attacks were being reported on the mainland as well, beginning in Miami and later in the southwest of the United States and in Mexico. Either the creature had migrated, or the stories had become so popular that reports of the sightings uh, and copycat attacks were being carried out there too. This time, the creature was described as dog-like, but reptilian, a reptile dog. Whether chupacabra exists or not, reports of bloodless murdered livestock persist, and to date, no satisfactory predator has ever been caught. So chupacabra may still be roaming out there. Wow. Okay. So we've seen pictures of, we have pictures of chupacabra. Or chupacabra. A lot yeah. of the times they're like animals that are dead and people have taken pictures, you know. And, and claiming and, it. And claiming it, that one. it's a chupacabra. Yeah. <laughs> Look what yeah. I got. 
<laughs> okay, so I'm covering cryptids from Europe and Asia. Technically, the two are combined into one continent of Eurasia. However, oh. they are considered their own individual continents because they are divided by various waterways, and each region is great in size and has its own distinct history and traditions, along with their own monsters. So I'm going to start off with uh, Europe. Uh, European cryptids. That sounds like fun. And so, you know... This one uh, has been cited in several areas in Europe, including Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, and many uh, many places in the European Alps for hundreds of years and have been called by many names, including Alps Dragon, <laughs> Stolen Worm, Spring Worm, Arasis, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure this has nothing to do with pretzels, Pretzel Worm. Pretzel Worm. <laughs> It's almost it's most oh, common Bergstutzen, Ber yeah, that Berg sounds pretty bad. Yeah, Bergstutzen. It's most common name though, and the one we'll be calling it is Totzelworm. So, Totzelworm. So if you haven't caught that worm part, um <laughs> I've noticed, I've noticed this is this is appearing in the Yodeling countries. This yes, that's right. It, well, it's all along the Alps. Uh -huh, so, you yeah. know, wherever the Alps is. So the the Totzel worm is one of the most famous European cryptids, and it's from Totsi, which means paw or claw, and worm, which is worm. Mm -hmm. It has a feline type head, two front legs with large claws, and the rest of its body resembles a snake. Wow. A lizard or even a dragon. Some accounts report that it has spikes along its back and may be venomous, able to kill a human instantly with its bite. And to take it even further, some say that the tonsil worm breathes poisonous fumes and even has acid blood. Ew. So it's been Nasty it's been reported for I mean, I think some is the longer something has been around the, the more extravagant. Yeah, the more extravagant it gets. So the first reported sighting of the tonsil worm was in 1779 when a man named Hans Fuchs, Fuchs yeah. claimed that the creature jumped out in front of him, scaring him so badly Boom. that he had a fatal heart attack. But before oh, he died... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> How did he claim it if <laughs> it was fatal? It wasn't, on, it wasn't instantly fatal, guys. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he, before he died, he was able to describe his encounter with the beast. He said it was five to seven feet long with a snake-like body, clawed front legs, and a large cat-like or feline-like head with sharp teeth. Oh, okay. Since that first encounter, the Totzelworm has been seen many times in the Alps, in Switzerland, Austria, and Italy. The creature built up quite a following of believers and was even considered to be fact in the 19th century. An illustration of the Totzelworm even made its way into a, an 1836 Bavarian hunting manual and an 1841 Swiss almanac. So wow. if you see it, shoot it. Okay, wow. that's what, it's in the hunting manual. Yeah. So the beast continued to be sighted down through the years with some people claiming to have a carcass or a skeleton. The specimens and even a, the couple photos that, that were taken were proven to be hoaxes, but Aww. many of the first-hand sightings were deemed to be credible. In the summer of 1969, a man reported a 30-inch long animal with two hind legs, so this is a little different, uh, near South Tyrol, Italy. It seemed to be like inflating its neck, I guess like some of the lizards do. It wasn't a dachshund. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big Dotson. <laughs> Sightings continue even to this day. Many in Italy were the folks or the local the local folks call the beast by the Italian name of Basil Basilisk. Oh, okay. So Harry Potter fans will know that one. Stone Basilisk. Basilisk. Because there have been so many reportings and sightings that waned during the winter months and then have become sparser throughout the years, some scientists actually have speculated that the Totsil worm may have been an actual undiscovered reptile that hibernates in the winter and whose population, while always small, is now on the verge of extin extinction. Hmm. Oh, the so. Totsil worm. Okay. That was an interesting one. We covered American monsters in our last episode, but deliberately did not cover Mothman of West Virginia because he's so well known, even by people not particularly interested in cryptids. This next monster is very similar to Mothman. Okay. Uh, Cornwall, a county in southwest England, has the Owl Man. Owl Man. This creature was first spotted by two young girls, and it was hovering menace menacingly above the Monon Church Tower in seventeen. I'm sorry, in 1976. Right. They described the creature as being about the size of a man, but having the appearance of an owl. 
It had pointed ears, red eyes, and black pincher-like like claws. And like Mothman, it has uh, large grayish wings. Hmm. The first, the girls were the first to call it Owlman, and the name stuck. So sightings of the figure continued to be reported on the following day and again on two occasions two years later in June and August of 1978, all within that vicinity of the church, hmm. which is kind of weird. The owl is attracted to the steeple or something. Yeah. And so there was a sighting of the owl man in 1989 by a young man and his girlfriend that said that the creature was gray and brown and had legs with high ankles and feet that were large and black with two huge toes. Hmm. They said further that the eyes definitely glowed. Wow. Um, And then again in 1995, a female tourist from Chicago wrote the Western Morning News in Truro Claiming to have seen a bird, quote, bird, a man bird with a ghastly face, a wide mouth, glowing eyes and pointed ears, as well as clawed wings. And I just I have to take a moment and say that, listen, I've wondered if Mothman and I'm getting out of picture here, if Mothman and now that I know about him, the Owlman, if they're actual animals that have been released outside their usual habitat. So look at these pictures. moved. Well, no, look. Okay, so that top one is a harpy eagle, and then the bottom is a shoebill stork, which are not indigenous to those areas. Right. And so um, both are really large, intimidating, and kind of ugly birds. They have, yeah. and they each have uncanny human-like stares. I mean, it kind of looks like a man, right? Yeah. yeah. So – I'm, I don't know. My theory, It's my theory. That's what I always thought Mothman might be. <laughs> that if somebody took one of these. Okay, so the Harpy Eagle is, inhabits South America, uh-huh. can get over three feet tall with a wingspan of seven and a half feet. Right. Okay. The Shoebill is a water bird living in marshes and swamps of Central Africa, and it always looks incredibly angry. Like yeah, it's going to just, look happy. yeah, it's just going to eat your spleen. He's, he's, like he, he's, he, yeah, and they Why can get some indigestion problems. Or something <laughs> they can get up to four and a half feet tall. They're normally silent, but yeah, during mating flight or at least hanging out on top of the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, if you yeah. see one of those yeah. in the twilight, so that's my theory. That's my theory. And he's just staring oh, yeah. you down. He's like, what are you going to do? And either one of them would be absolutely <laughs> Wait a terrifying in the dark. I'm just looking at your notes here. You didn't say what he sounded like. Well, okay. So the the shoebill usually is very... Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> not the right, oh, not the right notes. Not the right Stop one. it. I'm going to beat you with that chicken. Um, <laughs> the shoebill is usually pretty silent, but during the mating season, it can it makes a sound that people have compared to a machine gun. No, that's a that's a talented so, bird right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so anyway, just a suggestion: if you're a firm believer in Mothman or Owlman, don't come at me. I'm just throwing that idea out there. It could be an actual bird. That's right. I got right. my info from the cryptids.fandom.com and Wikipedia. Well, kind of on that note, uh, we're going to now hop across the Mediterranean Sea from Europe to the continent of Africa, and. Uh, you know, the, the great continent of Africa is the second largest continent and home to nearly a billion people. It has vast deserts, steamy jungles, amazing mountains, and an unlimited number of cryptids. <laughs> it's just got about everything. Yeah. Before we dive into African cryptids, though, we should point out, as we did in our North American cryptids episode, that numerous previous, previously thought cryptids turned out to be actual animals. That's right. That's true. So that could be what you're seeing there in that, uh, that uh, church tower in Cornwall. <laughs> Early European explorers often looked down on Africa's rich culture and traditions and thus often thought that reported sightings of strange animals were the figment of overactive imaginations. For example, according to Atlas Obscura, the mountain gorillas of Rwanda mm-hmm. were considered by Europeans to be cryptids until, unfortunately, a German soldier named Robert von Behringer shot one. Uh, the remains were taken back to Berlin, where it was identified as a new subspecies of gorilla. So you know, a lot of the uh, things that were thought to be cryptids turned out to be actual animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a good website called Exemplore, E-X-E-M-P-L-O-R-E, uh, and we learn about a cryptid from Africa called Nandi Bears, N-A-N-D-I-B-E-A-R-S. That sounds like a candy. Yeah, not related to gummy bears. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like something you would eat. That doesn't sound scary. It's not Care Bears. I'm taking it. Well, Nandi Bears have been seen all over the continent of Africa, and it's called different names depending on its location. Some of its names are Chimisit, C-H-I-M-I-S-I-T, Duba, 
carrot and ndolka. Okay, when you say carrot, it's K E R I T. Yeah, not C A R R O T. What's up, Doc? And then N G O L O K O Ngolko. Uh, there are no known members of the bear family living in Africa now. There was a species called the Atlas bear in the Atlas Mountains, but they went extinct in the 1700s. The Nandi bear is described as looking like a cross between a bear and a hyena. That's a, like oh. a pretty nasty animal. Yeah. It is about four to six feet tall. The coat ranges in color from a reddish brown to a dark, almost black. Uh, it leaves behind tracks that are almost nine inches long, with oh, five yeah. toes, and look distinctly canine. The creature is nocturnal and has been known to kill humans on moonless nights. Natives have burned down their own homes after trapping one inside. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> Do they taste well, good? I mean, that's li- a barbecue. Living in a grass point. hut, I'm thinking that's probably, you know, <laughs> not, your, not your three-bedroom ranch, but, you know, it's a, a smaller uh, grass variety. Westerners have also shot at it with no success. According to cryptidsfandom.com, a spate of sightings which introduced the Nandi bear to the wider world occurred during the construction of the Magadi Railway in British East Africa, that would be now known as the country of Kenya, uh, in uh, 1912 and 1913. The most famous sightings was that reported by railway engineer G.W. Hicks on the 8th of March, 1913, at around 9 a.m., Traveling to Railhead via motor trolley, Hicks saw what he initially took to be a hyena. Quote, it was almost on the rail line when I first saw it, and at that time it had already seen me and was making off at a right angle to the line. As I got closer to the animal, I saw it was not a hyena. At first, I saw it nearly broadside on. It then looked about as high as a lion. In color, it was tawny, about like a black-maned lion, with very shaggy long hair. It was short and thick-set in the body with high withers and had a short neck and stumpy nose. It did not turn to look at me, but loped off, running with its forelegs and both hind legs rising at the same time. Kind of like a horse, I guess. All of them in the air at once. Hmm. As I got alongside it, it was about 40 or 50 yards away, and I noticed it was very broad across the rump. It had short ears. It had no tail that I could see. And its hind legs came out of the grass. I noticed the legs were very shaggy right down to its feet and that the feet seemed large. Sightings yeah, continued in... Kind of like Kenya. a bear. Yeah, certainly sounds like a bear and hyena combined. Sightings continued in Kenya for the next few years. It was reported that a man-eating nandi bear struck in 1914 in a, in a Kenyan village where it killed a six-year-old girl. Oh, wow. So the British colonial administrator, William Hitchens, was dispatched to hunt the beast. And though he set up a perimeter around his tent, during the night, an animal with, quote, the most awful howl he ever heard tore down the tent and carried off his dog, leaving behind enormous clawed tracks. Hitchens later wrote of the sheer demonic horror of the beast's howl. To date, no reliable specimen has been captured, nor have any remains been located. Mandy bears. So it's interesting that that the hyena... You know, a lot in some of these cryptids, like everybody, oh, it's a hyena. It looks like a hyena. Uh-huh. Like, like hyenas are like super weird looking to begin with. Yes, you are. know, <laughs> could be a, an off hyena cousin somewhere, perhaps. Now we want to f- learn about the trunco. Yeah, T R U N K O trunco, made by Mattel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe could be is the nickname of an animal reportedly sighted in uh, Margate, South Africa, on October twenty fifth, nineteen twenty four. Not made a, by Mattel. No. Okay. Uh, according to an article entitled "Quote Fish Like a Polar Bear," <laughs> not fish as in a verb, but fish as in a noun, a meaning a fish like a polar bear. Okay. Uh, okay. Published in the December twenty seventh. 1924 edition of London's Daily Mail. The animal was reputed, uh, reportedly seen off the coast battling two killer whales, which oh. fought the unusual creature for three hours. There are a colony of killer whales that uh, reside off the coast of South Africa, so that's, uh, that maybe it got mixed up with them. It used its tail to attack the whales and reportedly lifted itself out of the water as much as 20 feet. The creature reportedly washed up on Margate Beach, but despite being there for 10 days, no scientist ever investigated the carcass while it was beached. So no reliable description has been published. And until September 10th, uh, September 2010, 
It was assumed that no photographs of it had ever been published. But in that year, researcher Dr. Carl um, Schuker discovered three photographs that had been published in Wide World magazine in 1925. And we've got some of those photographs. We'll put them on our website. Um, I'm sorry, on our Facebook page. Some people who have never uh, have not been identified were reported to have described the animal as possessing snowy white fur, an elephantine trunk, a lobster-like tail, and a, car- a carcass devoid of blood. <laughs> While it was beached, the animal was measured by beachgoers and turned out to be 47 feet long, wow. 14 meters, 10 feet wide, or 3 meters, 5 feet, or 1.5 meters high, uh, with the trunk's length being um, 5 feet. The trunk's diameter was 14 inches, or 13 centimeters. The tail, 10 feet, or 3 meters, and the fur being 8 to uh, eight inches long. Wow. So it actually had like polar bear fur, but it was, and it had a trunk like an elephant, but it came out of the ocean. It was a fish. That's Washed up on okay. the beach. The article from Wide, uh, Wide World Magazine in 1925, which accompanied the photos, states that a few hours previous to the sightings, a strong earthquake was felt near Margate, which was believed to have originated in the deep ocean. It was supposed that the quake might have jarred Trunco out of his deep sea home. So you, you know, there's all kinds of stuff down there right. that we have never seen. <laughs> well, the light of day hasn't even gone. Yeah. That's right. right. Um, there's some very deep parts of the ocean and unusual uh, creatures down there for sure. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All right, let's take a little break from cryptids and talk about an unusual lady for our oddity today. Marion Stokes, I'm sorry, Stokes, S-T-O-K-E-S. She was an unusual woman for sure. Uh, She worked as a librarian in Philadelphia for nearly 20 years, but was fired in the early 1960s, likely because of her work for the Communist Party. Uh, She and her (laughs) first husband wasn't too popular at the time somehow. Uh, she and her first husband attempted to defect to Cuba, but that didn't work out either, and neither did the marriage. She ended up divorcing him. Now, later in the 60s, she started working uh, in television. In fact, in 1968, she even hosted an early morning Sunday show in Philadelphia called Input. Oh, I can remember in that time, there would always be these early morning shows on Sunday, local shows, you know, interviewing local people. Uh, On this show, she would interview local uh, political, community, and religious leaders and other local celebrities discussing the issues of the day. She wound up marrying John Stokes, the show's producer. Perhaps her experience in television sparked in her a desire to document all things television-related. In 1975, she purchased a Sony Betamax and began recording TV shows. She never stopped. Later, switching to VCRs as the Betamax uh, played out. That's yeah, kind of an interesting didn't, story. Didn't, in didn't go anywhere, right? <laughs> Betamax was first, but the VCR, they wouldn't, Sony didn't share that technology. And so the... They weren't flexible with yeah, it, yeah. yeah. So VCRs supplemented the uh, Betamax. Anyway, she switched to VCRs, and soon she had three, four, five, and sometimes as many as eight tapes spinning away at one time in her apartment. Recording news broadcasts, commercials, and everything in between on multiple networks. Wow. She began collecting the videotapes and boxes, and she just kept right on recording. That's an obsessive... Hoarding? <laughs> yeah. Maybe? That, that, right? That's an obsessive uh, and hobby. It, it lasted from 1975 until her death in 2012. Wow. That's a lot of hours. She filled up over 71,000 video cassettes with live television programming. She actually rented nine vacant apartments to store all the boxes of tapes. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. When asked how she managed to handle all the physical aspects of this undertaking, her son replied, quote, we'd be out to dinner and suddenly we had to rush home to change tapes. <laughs> wow. Now, you might be wondering how Marion was able to afford all of this. Well, it appears that she made a very substantial early investment in a little company called Apple. Oh, wow. paid back enormous dividends Absolutely, there. it does. Now, like me, you might have assumed that television stations and networks had copies of everything that they ever broadcast. No. Nope. That's not true. Studios were constantly erasing and recycling broadcast tapes in order to save money and free up storage space. So what's become of Marion's life's work? Well, the cassettes are sitting in boxes, stacked 50 to a pallet, 
in the Internet Archives Physical Storage Facility in Richmond, California, waiting to be digitized. The tapes are not in chronological order, or really in any order at all. They got a little jumbled up as they were being transferred. Although no one knew it at the time, the recording Stokes made from 1975 until her death in 2012 are the only comprehensive collection preserving this period in television media history. Quote, our vision is really aligned with Marion's, says Roger McDonald, the director of the television archives of the Internet Archive. Quote, it's a bold and ambitious uh, goal to provide universal access to all knowledge. Now Stokes' work will be made publicly available on the Internet, uh, Internet Archives, bit by bit, offering everyone the opportunity to examine history and perhaps to set the record straight. This information came from Atlas Obscura. Uh, you know, there's a there's one particularly um, channel. I, I don't get it at my house, but I get it when I go to the gym called Buzzer. Have you ever seen Buzzer? Uh-uh. B-U-Z-Z-R. It's a channel that shows old game shows, which I love game oh, shows anyway. I bet. But what I also love about it is they also show the old commercials. From oh, the with 50s. those game shows? Yeah. From oh, the, that's awesome. From the 50s and 60s. And sometimes in those days, they actually did live commercials as part of the show, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, right now, we're going to hear from Stella, who's showing us this new dishwasher, you know, or this new dishwashing liquid or something like that. And so they would have that in there, or sometimes it would even be the other commercials. And so, you know, uh, I remember um, in the 70s I when I got my first cassette recorder, uh, I recorded some live radio so I could hear some of the music. And then I, I thought about going through and cutting out the commercials. But then many, many years later, I found them. And I like the commercials that were there better than the actual music. Yeah, you know? and it's neat to go back and look at, at uh-huh. commercials from your childhood or whatever. Right, TV commercials are, are Okay, so that reminds me, This I'm just going to throw this out here as, as just random. Uh, it reminds me of the story, the, the movie, the Disney movie Toy Story. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Was you know this story? It was nearly lost. They um they had a glitch and some. Let me see. I'm looking at this uh this website. Uh, I'll tell you what the website is in a second. I have to look at it. But um, a simple accident all, deleted it from all the studio's servers. Oh like my they, gosh! They did lose it. They actually lost the whole thing. And can you imagine? I mean, because that animation takes up so much. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, and especially being one of the first long movies right. they created, not just like little Completely shorts. By computer, and so, yeah. can you imagine exactly. being there that day and just like you've worked? I mean, oh, so many endlessly. people have worked yes. so yeah. many hours on this, and it's gone. It's yeah. just gone. And the panic, <laughs> and the person in you, hit you know <laughs> that hit delete or whatever. <laughs> However, there was a woman animator that no she was a technical director galen sussman she'd been working from home all on maternity leave hmm. had a copy of it she on her copy. she had the only copy left on her computer wow and she she managed to bring she it saved back the day. she saved the day that's why we have woody and buzz uh, i wonder if she named her kid woody or buzz <laughs> <laughs> well the kid was already born at that point i think oh, wow, she was okay. she was taking care of him but i got that that information from slashfilm.com nice so if uh, if they had had uh, what is this stokes what is her name uh, marian stokes yeah. yeah if they'd had her around that you know so it's interesting you know that she that's nearly 40 years worth of Television programming and commercials and, you know, just, advertisements and news broadcasts, everything in multiple channels that she recorded. I wonder uh, what her motivation was just to just to preserve it. I guess she maybe had it? a sense that somebody, you know, that somebody, it would, it would be valuable to somebody someday, you know. Yeah, the to, preservation of all of it, especially right. if she'd already been in broadcasting and stuff for a while before that. I guess she kind of knew. She probably that already they, knew that they're reusing the tapes. Right. right? And I think I remember hearing Dan Rather talk about uh, one time he, you know, he he was working at the local Houston CBS station before he was in CBS Network, and he said he interviewed Lyndon Johnson at the 1960 convention, and the tape's been lost because they probably reused it to cover a house fire right after he got back. Probably. <laughs> Hey, we just want to take a minute to ask all of you out there a favor. You know, if we've ever made you laugh or made you think or taught you something that you didn't know before, well, 
We are grateful for your participation by sharing our podcast with your friends, your family, your circle of contacts. That uh, means a lot to us. Anyone <laughs> else <hairdresser>. listen? <laughs> Anyone else that you think would enjoy learning and, and our style of podcast? It no. would mean the absolute world to us. This is how we get new listeners is by word of mouth. That's so right. we would so appreciate it. Greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. We really appreciate all of our listeners. And if you really enjoy podcasts, here's another one that you might be interested in. We know you enjoy intriguing and bizarre stories because you're listening to Remnants Do. But have you ever considered writing your own fictional weird short stories or novels? If so, we recommend the Reading and Writing Podcast today to learn tips and tricks from the best-selling writers on how you can write your novel or short story. Listen to interviews with many best-selling writers like Dean Koontz, Sandra Brown, Delilah S. Dawson, Jeffrey Deaver, and many, many more. That's the Reading and Writing Podcast. So all you have to do is search Reading and Writing Podcast in your favorite podcast app today. There's more than 600 episodes featuring interviews with writers explaining how you can write the story or novel that you've always wanted to write. All right, now let's get back to our international cryptids. This is such a fun topic. We're going now to the land down under Australia, mate. The land where everything will kill you. Like <laughs> all the monsters, the snakes, the spiders, everything. Oh, but you remember our... And those our... are the ones that they found and, kangaroo- and can show you. Kangaroos are yeah. freaky. Oh, they're, they're boxers. They're freaky. Boxers, kickboxers. <laughs> they're yeah, kickboxers. That's what they'll do. Uh, but you remember our one episode we had not too long ago that we found the most dangerous animal was horses down there. More people died yeah, because of horses. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, anyway, as mentioned on our last show, numerous animals such as kangaroos and platypuses were once thought to be cryptids. Of course, subsequent exploration has proven the actual existence of these interesting animals. From gizmodo.com, we find a terrific article written by a talented journalist named Leah Williams. Uh, it's called Your Field Guide to Australia's Local Cryptid Population. Yes, the land down under has a wide range of cryptids as well as a large number of documented dangerous creatures. Many of these cryptids derive from stories of the aboriginal people, but recent sightings are also quite common. Now, the first one is called the Bunyip. That's right, the B U N Y I P. It sounds like something you might have but when you see it on your foot, you know. <laughs> When you see it spelled out, you think maybe jackrabbit? <laughs> oh, yeah, because it kind of looks like bunny. Like yeah, bunny, bunny, bunny it's if, not, no. It's but bun- it's bunyip. Bunyip originated in indigenous Australian folklore, and it was believed to be a kind of water spirit that infested lakes and other bodies of water. Like many famous cryptids, the Bunyip's hobbies are said to be screaming loudly at passersby and eating people. <laughs> Yo, don't step in my water! <laughs> Sightings were most common between the 1840s and 1850s and were well documented in Victoria and South Australia. In 1845, uh, a report in the Geelong Observer, that's a town, Geelong Observer is a newspaper, described uh, several encounters with bunyips, including one that ended in a broken arm and another that ended in death. It also contained the following description, quote, the bunyip then is represented as uniting the characteristics of a bird and an alligator. It has a head resembling an emu with a long bill, at the extremity of which is a transverse projection on each side with serrated edges like the bone of a stingray. Now, that's a bad-looking bird. Uh, yes. you, got, you got like a serrated steak knife coming out of both sides of your mouth. Definitely yeah. a dinosaur. And like fish hooks, yeah. <laughs> its body and legs um, partake of the... Nature of the alligator, the hind legs are remarkably thick and strong, and the forelegs are much longer, but still of great strength. When in the water, it swims like a frog, and when on shore, it walks on its hind legs with its head erect, in which position it measures 12 or 13 feet in height. Oh, wow. wow, That's big. That's a big bunyip. (laughs) While bunyip sightings have uh, lulled in the years since, whispers of their existence still persist in many circles. An internet site called Mysterious Universe identified a possible recent sighting in a 2019 video that has since been pulled from the internet. Conspiracy, (laughs) I say yes. The missing video was allegedly shot in Western Australia outback 
And the creature supposedly ate a horse before the finish was shot. <laughs> so you see, oh, wow. uh, allegedly, supposedly, the bunyip is definitely, probably real and might have eaten a horse or maybe a rabbit. But it's all on tape. Tape that is mysteriously no, missing, but so what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, okay, so I had heard about the bunyip. And the reason I heard about it is because on the internet, there's several people that were scarred as children from watching a movie called the called Dot and the Kangaroo. And in that movie, there is a, a feature where the bunyip is coming after her, and Ooh. it terrified kids. And, and you can look it up on YouTube. Uh, look up Dot <laughs> and the Kangaroo, at the bunyip portion, and it is, it's it's pretty freaky. <laughs> well, that's not uh, Slim Shady. That's not one of his songs. <laughs> no. It's not, I mean, Slim Dusty, the great Australian yeah, folk like, singer. Right, yeah. Slim Dim Dusty is one of those things. Slim Shady Slim is somebody Shady. else. <laughs> Slim Shady is somebody else. Slim Dusty. Just... We're just throwing culture around all yeah. over the place. Well, anyway, let's on to the next Australian cryptid, shall we? We're still trying and to I, decide I love, if there is a culture here. I think this one has a great name. The Yowie, Y-O-W-I-E, Yowie. Does it sound like this? I don't know. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, is the Australian version of Bigfoot or the Yeti, a large, hairy man-thing that patrols the Australian outback. Sometimes it sits and minds its own business. Other times, you guessed it, it eats people. <laughs> of course, why not? Like the bunyip, the, the Yowie originated from Australia's indigenous folklore. It's alternatively known as a quinklin and is more commonly cited uh, on Australia's east coast. While the Yowie myth became widely spread in the 1800s, sightings of the Yowie occur frequently with several prominent incidents. The Australian bush is a large place, so the next time you visit, watch out for giant footprints and an incredibly hairy man. It might be your neighbor Gary, or it could be something far more sinister. You got an evening, Gary? It could be Phil. Yeah, it could be Phil. I don't mean to alarm you, but there have been Yowie reports as recently as July 19, 2020, claiming that the creatures have been stalking the Gold Coast, which is just south of Brisbane in Queensland. So if you live there, you might want to move. Yowie. <laughs> or get a real photo. Get Not real. those blurry things. Yeah, I mean, your iPhones photo. take great photos. Come on, people. Okay, but now our next one, we do have a legitimate undocumented, uh, I'm sorry, untouched Undo photo. Uh, undocumented photo. <laughs> it's documented. Documented, untouched. Uh, yeah, it is a documented. Uh, let me just get into it. How about that? <laughs> Called the Hook Island Monster. Um, speaking of Queensland, Hook Island is located off the northeast coast in the state near the Great Barrier Reef. It is also home to a huge fish or giant tadpole-like thing, according to local legend. There is a very convincing photograph taken by Robert Le Sorek in the 1960s. As the story goes, Sorek was out fishing in the Stonehaven Bay when his wife noticed a strange dark shape in the water. It was said to be at least 20 meters long and completely horrifying looking. Um, but uh, still, Sorak ventured up to snap a pic, uh, picture of it and presumably poke a stick at it. <laughs> yeah, let's just poke it. It doesn't eat humans yet. When, when he got closer, the thing moved and tried to eat him and his companion, <laughs> according to his account in the Australia Everyone magazine. Sorak was a professional photographer, and given this was back in the days before deep fakes and Photoshop, uh, it is uh, considered to be a uh, valid uh, photo. The images uh, were spread widely around the globe uh, and never proven to be false. We have that, that image also, and it mm -hmm. does look like this, right. a, an enormous uh, tadpole sheep in the, in the water. And given the presence of such gigantor creatures as the giant squid, it's not hard to stretch the imagination to accommodate a giant tadpole. These creatures may not exist. They could just be the stuff of myth and legend, but nobody has proved definitely that <laughs> they're not out there. So if you find yourself in the Australian outback, the Australian ocean, or literally anywhere in Australia, stay safe, stay vigilant, and stay calm, and be on the safe side. Keep your toes out of the water. <laughs> Get your camera ready. Yeah. Really? Yeah, have your camera ready. Okay, so our last continent to cover is Asia, the largest continent and home to many fantastic creatures, both mythical and real as well as some that live somewhere in between. I guess we should point out we didn't uh, find any Antarctic cryptids. Uh, no, we didn't, probably because, not because they're not there, yeah. but because people aren't there to see them. They're well hidden. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So um, the Sigbin 
is a creature from the mythology and lore of the Philippines. Yeah. It's said to be nocturnal, coming out only at night to suck the blood of its victims. Um, we hadn't had one of those yet. Chupacabra. Chupacabra yeah. did oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's Chupacabra. right. It is a bloodsucker. Yeah. It's supposedly... It the bloodsucker. Yeah. <laughs> the bloodsucker. Okay, Sigmund supposedly walks backwards with its head lowered between its hind legs to watch where it's going. <laughs> I don't know. He's stuck in reverse? Uh, Poor guy. It can no become, wonder he's going to eat people. <laughs> it can become invisible at will, but otherwise looks like a hornless <laughs> goat with large ears that... Listen, it can clap together like a pair of hands. He can clap his ears together like, like, like can, a pair of like hands. It a, he can applaud. Um, <laughs> That's a good and one. It has a long, flexible tail that can be used as a whip. That's a good trick. The Sigmund is said to be incredibly stinky, emitting an odor that will make you very sick. Legend has it that the Sigmund will emerge from its lair during Holy Week to go hunting for children. It will use the children's hearts to create amulets. Ooh. There are stories. So Asia is just full of lore and legend, and they, hmm. you know, so so this is one of theirs. There are stories that certain wealthy and powerful people called Sigbinen possess the power to control the Sigbin, and they keep them in clay jars as pets. Wow. Some speculate it's a big that clay jar that reminds me of that mermaid episode we had. <laughs> <laughs> Some speculate that the legend of the Sigmund is related to the sightings of actual animals that are rarely seen, perhaps a species of kangaroo. With the mm. recent discovery in the island of Borneo of the cat fox, a potential new species of carnivore described as having hind legs that are longer than its front legs, kind of like a hyena, yeah. it has been postulated that reportings. Reported sightings of Sigmund may actually be sightings of a member or relative of the cat fox species. Uh, let's go hmm. back to that beginning. It's supposed to, it walks backwards with its head lowered between its hind legs I to think, watch where it's going. I think that the, there have been reported sightings of something, and then the legend and the Lord just, just uh, grew, from that. grew from it. Yeah. Because yeah, if you yeah, look yeah. at a lot it of the... It walks backwards with its head between its legs. See where it's going. But that sounds it's... awesome. Yeah, we got to put that in the legend. <laughs> it would be upside down. You know, if you're just trying to, you know, if you're looking at, I don't know, if you've ever looked at something and tried to figure out what in the world you're seeing, sometimes, you know, humans aren't the best at <laughs> describing, you know. What are you saying? We're ocularly and impaired so, yeah. as I adjust my glasses? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And and I'm saying that Asia is just, I mean, it, they are they chock love... full oh, of... Yeah interesting and cool stories and legends. So okay. this next one, the Tsuchi Noko, Tsuchi Noko, it's a venomous snake-like creature that haunts the mountainous regions of western Japan. Okay. Sightings date back mm. more than 1400 years. Wow. So this one's really well established. And they're a long time. And it's generally described as being approximately three feet long. With This isn't like one of the least scary yeah. Once, because it's not very big, even though it's been around that long. And usually, like fish stories, you know, they get, they bigger, get, and bigger, and bigger. They get bigger and bigger. This one's only about three feet long with a thick middle section. So it looks like a snake, but a really fat a in the fat middle snake. snake. Um, so he's pudgy. Yeah, yeah. he's pudgy. The, the creature inhabits the watery caves of Shikoku and Honshu and swims in the rivers. It has large plate-like scales, a black tongue, Dude. and small horns growing out the sides of its head. Okay, I'm going to try saying it again. The Tsuchi Noko, whose name means child of dirt, has been reported to be able to leap more than its body length and actually even like leap up three feet and Uh then leap again. Oh, double jump. Yeah, double double jump in the air. From the air. Wow. Yeah. And has the ability to make all kinds of noises from the squeak of a mouse to even mimicking a human voice. Wow. One legend says. Yeah, one legend says that the Tsuchinoko can bite its own tail so that it forms a circle. It does this in order to roll down a hill at high speeds when chasing prey. Now, listen, that's not that's not unheard that's a good of, trick right? Right there, man. Like, well, wait, whoa, have whoa. you? Okay, so but this it's similar to the Ouroboros in Greek mythology. So it's like a circle snake, and stories of the hoop snake in in America and Canada. Have okay. you never heard of that? Yeah. Or, 
there's there's been illustrations in old uh in old books and stuff of the hoop snake where it bites its tail and it rolls down like a hula hoop. It's a better wheel than somebody can invent. Nice. So some of the wilder stories centered around the Tsuchinoko is that it can talk. Oh. <laughs> but it's not to be trusted. It also lies a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, you can't it's trust a that snake. snake. <laughs> and it's a snake after all, who's gonna trust it to tell the truth? And like which one which one of your cryptids liked alcohol, like schnapps? Uh yeah, that was the um <laughs> Yo, which one was it? Kulubran, the 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 Kulbran. No, Kulubran. 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 Yeah, that's it. Well, the 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 Tsuchinoko likes uh likes the taste of alcohol. So, if you're being chased by one, give it a hit. down the hill. Yeah, schnapps. <laughs> Remember, always Japan. carry schnapps. In, sake in Japan. You want right? some sake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It might like schnapps. You just like know, the other. Can't get it easy. Might as well get schnapps. Okay, so in 2001, so as recently as 2001, <laughs> the town of Makata claimed to have captured a Tsuchinoko. Oh. They put the animal on display. It was a meter long with a black body and a black tongue. The town declined, though, to do any scientific testing to confirm its identity, saying. Mm. It needed to rest. Yeah. <laughs> could be. Could be a cardboard so, cutout, too. Right? So I think maybe that town was just wanting tourists. Made out know. of clay? But, uh-huh. um, but it, and the reason I say that is because there are, like, there's rewards out there for capturing one of these. Oh, no doubt. Okay. Sure. And and so you could travel to to Japan to hunt for one of those yourself. The Tsuchi Noko. There's you know you could Tsuchi Noko. You could get rich doing that. And I found my information on this one at thoughtcatalog.com. But remember, don't run downhill because he'll bite his own tail. That's right. Yeah. Stay you. yeah. He'll stay on you. the high ground. Right. right. Stay higher than <laughs> stay on level ground anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now we travel to Southeast Asia to discover a small cryptid of Indonesia. The Ibu Gogo are short and hairy humanoid creatures around three feet wait, in wait. height. I think I think I saw that discotheque back in the 60s, the Ibu Gogo. <laughs> the, the Ibu Gogo. <laughs> Very funny. Um, they're hairy humanoid creatures around three feet in height and big guts. <laughs> and, they, and they've been sighted by the locals since, since ancient times. They feature very heavily in the local folk- folklore. And the Do native they live in grass huts I mean, the hills? You know, well, no, I'm going to tell you where they live. Okay. In the native language, the term Ibu Goga means grandmother who eats anything. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they, well, we can go all kinds of directions with yeah. that one. And they think that maybe that's possibly a colloquialism just meaning a glutton. Mm-hmm. Um, they're said to have their own language but are able to mimic human words much like a parrot would. I see. Okay, so the locals believe that Ibu Goga were alive as late as the 17th century with some surviving into the 20th century but are now no longer seen. Uh-huh. According to legend, humans and the Ibu Gogo lived in peace with each other for a time, but the Ibu Gogo started killing off livestock and crops. It became a nuisance, so then people started killing them. Then the Ibu Gogo fled to caves where they continued to live, all while coming out and stealing food from the humans. Then after the kidnapping of a baby, the local people disposed of the Ibu Gogo by tricking them into accepting gifts of palm fiber to make clothes. And when they took the fiber into their caves, the villagers threw in fire and to set it all ablaze and and put them all to death. The story goes that all the occupants were killed except for maybe one or two who fled off into the deepest forest Mm. whose descendants may be living there still. Now, listen, some legends have said that the Ibu Gogo were cannibals. This is one cryptid, though, that actually may be rooted in fact. There are some archaeological evidence that a small humanoid species may have lived in that area at one time. Wow, interesting. Interesting. And I got that information from ThoughtCatalog.com and and Wikipedia. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge. Well, you know how this... uh, Wait, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> We're answering a question. Oh, yeah. That's not Pull a trivia challenge. That's right. <laughs> trivia challenge. You know how this trivia challenge works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. So what's our question today, Leah? Okay, so this singular creature reportedly lives on the Isle of Man and was known for being quite loquacious and clever. Name that cryptid. 
name that cryptid. That's a good one. All right, folks, remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Remnants to Podcast. Remember to email us any suggestions that you want to hear later in another episode at staycurious at remnants2.com. Oh, we like hearing your suggestions. We've, Bring them. We, we've made some episodes from people's suggestions. Remnants 2 is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research right and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sankfeld. Some of it's not good. You're welcome. Uh, you make us sound great, Phil. Come on. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harvin Gold. Now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. We love seeing those reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, and your crazy cousins in the old country. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and, and always, always stay, stay curious. curious.